We've all heard of and experienced the fight or flight response, right? You know what this is. It's that idea that when intense things happen, there's some, uh, you know, deeply ingrained biological response that makes us either want to run or fight. It's really an interesting phenomenon, and it has to do with, you know, the amygdala telling the uh, body to release adrenaline and then adrenaline affecting our blood rate and our heartbeat and how much we breathe and all this interesting stuff. Um, but, but the effect is, is like instantaneous, and it doesn't take any thought. It just happens. So I'm sure you've all had plenty of times where you felt triggered in, in that way. Now, there's a particular moment I remember. Many, many years ago, I was living in North Carolina with uh, Krista, and we were in a small apartment in this kind of apartment complex in Durham. And where we lived, there was like a little kind of a feeder road and, and apartments on either side of it. And I was walking home. It was uh, in the afternoon or evening, and I had my little dog who was, you know, a 35-pound mutt, really cute, not very ferocious. And as we're walking home, we're maybe, I don't know, a, a block or so from our house. And from the house that is across that feeder road, and I'm sorry, the apartment, across the feeder road and two doors down, I heard a gunshot. And if you ever heard a gunshot, like, in your neighborhood, um, boy, that just triggers that response immediately. And, and it actually, it triggered it in me, and it triggered it in my dog. And I don't think my dog had ever heard a gunshot before, but somehow he knew that wasn't a good noise. We had opposite responses. My response was fight. So my response was, what was that? I'm going to go find out. Maybe not the most intelligent response. And my dog's response was flight, like we're going to run out of here. Now, he was on a leash, and he was only 35 pounds, but he almost pulled me over, right? So he like ducked to the ground, head forward, just running as fast as he can in the direction of home against the leash. Maybe two seconds after the gunshot, um, I saw like this mess of people pour out of the house, all jump into cars and drive off in every direction. And as that happened, I thought two things. Uh, my first thought was, ah, I don't have my cell phone on me. I can't call the police. Uh, my second thought was, my dog is so much smarter than I am, I'm going with flight. So I um, followed the dog at a, at a high rate of speed into our apartment um, where we did call the police and everything was, as far as I know, fine. No one was hurt. Police came. They did their thing. Uh, after it was all over, I remember just being exhausted, right? Just, just totally wiped out because that intense response does that. And so I, I think I took a nap and the dog took a nap and we lived happily ever after. Uh, so you've all had that experience. There are two problems with the fight or flight response to, to stress. The first problem is um, our bodies can't distinguish between the physical danger and other kinds of danger like emotional stress, etc. So it's really actually kind of helpful when there's a gunshot or I don't know, like a saber-toothed tiger chasing you that, that you have that response. But it's not so helpful when you're going in for a job interview or when you're going to ask that girl or that boy out on a date, or when you've got to have a really awkward conversation with someone, or when you've got to speak in public and you don't like doing that, right? We have that exact same um, physical reaction to that stress. The other problem with the fight-or-flight response is um, it was designed for us to freak out and then rest. But sort of in our world, we have constant stress, 
right? So we have one difficult thing after another, after another, after another. I got to get the kids to school on time, and then I got to get this project in before my boss gets on my back about it, and then uh, I got to have this difficult conversation with so-and-so down the hall, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it builds and builds and builds. And the effect of all of that um, stress and stress response is pretty damaging for us, right? It's this extreme fatigue and exhaustion and depression um, that, you know, is more and more common in our world. Here's why this matters. Uh, this is what's happening with the disciples this night. And, and I have a lot of sympathy for the disciples um, because this is an unbelievably stressful night for them. Um, one thing after another after another that triggers that deep visceral response and that overwhelming stress. So first, they gather together for this really fun meal. It's supposed to be a great celebration, but all of a sudden Jesus starts talking about, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me unto death. And the disciples understandably are freaking out and saying, not me, right? Like it's not going to be me, I hope. And, and then Jesus says, well, one of you who like ate out of the same bowl that I ate out of is going to do it. And they're like, well, that doesn't help because all 12 of us ate out of that same bowl. So you're telling us that one of the 12 people that you know best is going to betray you tonight. And then Jesus moves on from that and he starts talking about um, this new covenant. And he says, you're going to eat my body and drink my blood, which is pretty problematic and confusing and weird. And then he says, I will never again drink wine until I'm in heaven. This is the last time I'll drink this. And, and you could just feel their stress level ratcheting up, right? Uh, and then Jesus leaves and they go to Mount of Olives and he says, by the way, you're all going to desert me tonight. Tonight, you're all going to run away from me. And everybody says, we are absolutely not going to do that, Jesus. We love you. And Peter who says, I mean, I'm the leader here. I'm, there's no way I'm going to do it. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, it's not just that you're going to desert me. You particularly are going to deny that you know me at all, not one time, but three times before morning. And the disciples say, we're willing to die for you, Jesus. And you can just feel, right, that stress ratcheting up and higher and higher. And then Jesus goes away and he takes Peter and James and John. Uh, and the Bible says he begins to be grieved and agitated. Uh, and, and then he tells the disciples, I'm deeply grieved even to death. You know what's scarier than mom and dad being angry at you? Mom and dad being terrified, right? Because you know when mom and dad are scared, um, it's scary for you too. Uh, and, and I have to imagine the disciples have never seen Jesus act like this before. Jesus goes off by himself and the disciples who are overwhelmed with all of this stress and, and fear and everything that's happening, they just, they just have this natural physical reaction and they just, they just fall asleep. Then Jesus comes back and he says, hey, the only thing I asked you to do on this like, worst night of my life was that I asked you to stay awake and you couldn't do that. And then on top of all of that stress and fear, they add shame because right? they let him down. And what do they do? They fall asleep again. I have enormous sympathy for the disciples on this night because I, I feel like while this is unique, in many ways our lives are like this night. Right? 
In many ways, we are a people that are often overwhelmed with the stress of our lives, with all of the things that we are trying to juggle and all of the people we're trying to care for, all the relationships that matter to us and all of the work responsibilities and all of our spiritual responsibilities. And we're overwhelmed by our sin and the times we've let God down. And we're overwhelmed with trying to figure out what God wants from us and wants us to do. And all of that stress kind of compounds and compounds and compounds until we have a tendency to kind of spiritually fall asleep. We have a tendency to, to fall into kind of a spiritual stupor where we can forget about what God has called us to do or even forget about God in general or even forget about those He's placed in our lives that we get to love. And we just get overwhelmed and we just kind of spiritually shut down. In this story on this night, there is just one person um, who doesn't do that, who is dealing with all of this stress but stays awake to God's will in his life. And so I want to think tonight about what Jesus does um, that can help us know how to stay awake when he calls us to be awake. And I, I firmly believe that, I mean, of course, Jesus is God, but, but I, I believe that He is trying to model for us, even in this moment, the worst night of His life, I think He's trying to model for us how we are to stay faithful and stay awake to God's will in our lives in these extraordinary times of trial. And so I, I think Jesus intentionally shows us two things, two practices that help us to stay awake to God. Uh, the first is Jesus takes time to rest in prayer. Jesus takes time to rest in prayer. When we are overwhelmingly stressed, um, and generally we're not great at handling that stress. Uh, part of it is that we just tend to add things on, right? I'll just do more and I'll be more busy and I'll take on more responsibility and um, I'll just push, you know, my shoulder to the grindstone and Jim will take care of it. Um, but, but also, even when we do try to rest, I think we rest poorly. And there's been a lot of really interesting research about some of the behaviors that are most common uh, with people that are trying to relax or, or have fun after a stressful day. Uh, and, you know, those are behaviors you would imagine, right? Like watching television or eating chocolate or, you know, just kind of chilling out, doing nothing. Uh, and And all this interesting research comes back to say that those behaviors actually make us feel worse, not better. Uh, after a really stressful day, sitting around and scrolling through my social media feed for 20 minutes or two hours doesn't actually de-stress me. In fact, all of this research comes back to tell us that what it actually does is it makes me feel bored and depressed, right? I, I, I go from one extreme of overwhelmed to another extreme of uh, underwhelmed, right, of, of saying, boy, this isn't even worth my time. And I, I think what Jesus recognizes and what we are supposed to recognize is that when we are overwhelmed in all of these different ways in our lives, our response should not be to give up doing anything, but to get involved in the right doings. Right? And the right doing that Jesus recognizes is resting in prayer, is, is spending time with God. That when I am overwhelmed and I feel like I don't have enough, I don't have enough patience, I don't have enough uh, 
hope. I don't have enough joy. I don't have enough courage. I got to go to the source of patience and the source of courage and the source of joy and the source of strength. And I have this unbelievable opportunity to, to walk into God's presence and be with the one who gives all that stuff out. And so Jesus says, in those moments of extraordinary stress, it is resting in the presence of God. It is, it is resting in prayer that is essential for us if we want to stay awake to what He wants for us in our lives. Um, there's an author I really love, I've mentioned before, named Peter Scazzaro, who, who talks about something he calls loving union. I really like this idea. He says, in, in essence, that what we have to cultivate as believers in God is, is some loving union time with Jesus, right? So, it, it's, it's one thing if I, uh, you know, get together with my wife in the evening after work and we cook dinner and we do the dishes and we talk about what's on the agenda for tomorrow and um, we maybe vacuum the house and put the kids to bed and then we crash, it's another thing if I get together with my wife and I say, hey, I want to spend like an hour just talking with you. Like, I just love being with you. And I want, to, I want to hear about not just your day and what happened, but, you know, where you experienced God in the midst of it and, and where you felt really overwhelmed and, and what I can do to make you feel more loved. And I mean, that's loving union time, right? And, and Peter says essentially that we need that desperately with God. And he has this really interesting piece of advice. He says, um, when you are trying to begin cultivating loving union with God or resting in prayer, you should find your desert. Find your desert. And, and he points out that throughout Scripture, so many of the people that are trying to connect with God do it in the desert, literally in the desert, right? So Moses spends 40 years in the desert, and then another 40 years in the desert with the Israelites. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert before He begins His ministry, and then again and again throughout that ministry, He goes off into the wilderness on His own to pray. Uh, and in fact, literally going into the desert has been something that's been significant uh, throughout much of the Christian story. There's a famous monk uh, who was part of the Desert Fathers and Mothers in the 3rd to 5th centuries, named Anthony the Great of Egypt. Uh, he lived from 251 A.D. to 356 A.D. He was 105 years old. Uh, Peter writes this about Anthony. He says, Anthony, after receiving an excellent education and upbringing from his Christian parents in Egypt, began living in solitude outside his village before eventually retreating to the desert to live for 20 years. Author Henry Nouwen writes, he renounced possessions to learn detachment. He renounced speech in order to learn compassion. He renounced activity in order to learn prayer. In the desert, Anthony both discovered God and did intense battle with the devil. When Anthony emerged from his solitude after 20 years, people recognized in him the qualities of an authentic and healthy man. He was whole in body, mind, and soul. Thousands sought him out for counsel, and God used him mightily. Here's how one author of the time described him. It was not his physical dimension that distinguished him from the rest, but the stability of character and purity of the soul. Now, I, I realize that none of us are going to go spend 20 years in the desert, um, but this idea of saying, I have to get away from the rest of the distractions of my life and be totally committed to spending time with God is so critical for us. And like Anthony, we can't do this just one time, right? This is a lifestyle, a practice of saying, hey, I've got 
a park bench in my neighborhood. I've got a, a, a chair next to the window in my home. I've got a spot in a spare bedroom. I've got a spot in the library. I've got a spot where I go, and it's like my desert. Right? It's that place where I go to be completely dedicated and present to God, to work on resting in prayer with Him. Uh, and, and here's the key. If you wait until your greatest crisis uh, the greatest stress of your life to start praying. You're a little bit like a caveman who never learns to run until he meets his first saber-toothed tiger, right? You're not going to get very far. And so this is a practice we begin now and work on throughout our lives. And again, like exercising, the first time, the first many times that you go to be alone with God in prayer, it's going to feel awkward and weird and like you don't know what you're doing and you're going to wonder if you're doing it right. Um, and you just keep at it, right? You keep finding that desert place and saying, God, I want to experience some union with you. I want to be with you today. Jesus spends a life of resting in prayer, and in this moment, the worst moment of his life, um, that's his go-to practice. And that, by the way, is what he tells the disciples to do, right? Stay awake and pray. Second thing Jesus does um, that I think is overwhelmingly important um, in, in dealing with the the, the crushing stress of our lives and what it means to stay awake to God's presence in the midst of it, is Jesus takes what is external and He makes it internal. Jesus takes what's external and He makes it internal. Um, he has this really interesting line. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, when Jesus says that, I don't think He means the Holy Spirit. I think He means like your spirit, my spirit, the um, the aspirations and the hopes and the dreams, the best parts of me that wants to be a faithful follower of Christ, that wants to obey and honor God with my life, that part of me wants to do it, but my flesh um, is weak, right? The, my sin nature, my just natural response of selfishness. And I think Jesus is saying part of what we are called to do is to help our spirit win over our flesh. Uh, anybody out there play golf? Okay, D don't raise your hands. That's, 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 that golf isn't a fun game. Uh, I've played golf a few times. I don't enjoy it because I'm really, really bad, okay? Um, but here's, here's my problem with golf, and actually, if I'm honest, it's a problem with all games. If you really need me to get this tiny little ball from here way the heck over there and put it in a tiny little hole, if it's really important, I can do it. I can just pick it up and walk over there and drop it in, right? But no, you think, hey, let's make it a little challenging. How about you take this stick and you hit the ball over into that hole? And by the way, we're going to put some traps in between the ball and the hole. Uh, and we're going to, let's do it 18 times. That sounds good. And, and then um, we'll count and see how many tries it takes you to get it in the hole. It's going to take me an infinite number of tries, okay? Uh, that doesn't sound enjoyable to me. It actually sounds kind of stressful. And, and, and here's the thing. It is actually stressful, um, but it's a kind of stress that we enjoy. Uh, there, there's a wonderful book called Reality is Broken that talks a little bit about um, the, the benefits of video games um, and, and games in general. And the author talks about um, good and bad stress, um, negative stress being um, that which that we are, are trying to avoid, escape, good stress being things like games, like golf that we take on ourselves. Uh, and, and the author says, from a psychological and neurological standpoint, good stress 
is virtually identical to bad stress. We produce adrenaline, our reward circuitry is activated, blood flow increases to the attention control centers of the brain. What's fundamentally different is our frame of mind. When we're afraid of failure or danger, or when the pressure is coming from an external source, extreme um, neurochemical or stress activation doesn't make us happy. It makes us angry and combative, or it makes us want to escape and shut down emotionally. It can trigger avoidance behaviors like eating, smoking, or taking drugs. But during good stress, we aren't experiencing fear or pessimism. We've generated the stressful situation on purpose, so we're confident and optimistic. When we choose our hard work, we enjoy the stimulation and activation. It makes us want to dive in, join together, get things done. And this optimistic invigoration is way more mood-boosting than relaxing. As long as we feel capable of meeting the challenge, we report being highly motivated, extremely interested, and positively engaged by stressful situations. Perhaps that's why gamers spend less time watching television than anyone else on the planet. You notice what Jesus says in His prayers to His Father? He says, this horrible thing is going to happen to me. I really don't want it to happen to me. I would really love it if this cup could pass. But not what I want, but what you want. And if this cup can't pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus says, hey, this thing that's going to happen to me, if it's your will, God, I'm going to be involved in making it happen. It's not going to be something that happens to me. It's going to be something that you and I do together. Not stress outside of me, but stress inside. Stress I choose. Stress I take as my own. I know some people who live their life like it's happening to them. Maybe you know folks like this as well, who are kind of spectators in their own life. In every relationship, they're in the passenger seat and not in the driver's seat, who um, they, they are always reacting and never acting. And I think Christ is saying, um, in this most difficult moment of my life, I don't want to be passive. I don't want to be a recipient. I want to be on mission with my God. And if that means that His will has to become my will, then I want that to happen, even if I would never choose it on my own. In those moments when I look at my life and I say, oh, Jesus, I just, I can't measure up all these rules that are outside of me that overwhelm me and, and, and bring me shame. I keep falling asleep and you want me to be awake. Uh, if I can say, but you know what? If that's what you want, then I want it too. And those rules aren't your rules anymore. Now they're mine too, right? Now I care deeply about making those happen. It changes my whole response to God. Now, if I look at the, the, the trials and the suffering in our world and say, boy, that stuff is overwhelming and too big for me and I can't do anything about it and it's just happening to me, then it's easy to just get overwhelmed by the stress and, and fall sort of spiritually asleep. But if I say, all right, God, if that's your will, if you want me engaged in that work, uh, then I'm going to get in it, and it's going to be my mission too. And all of a sudden, um, that stress becomes the sort of stress that invigorates me instead of overwhelms me. Um, this is uh, Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after Jesus is resurrected, 
who he's tried to go back to fishing, and Jesus says, you can't go back to fishing. I made you a fisher of men. And Peter says, all right, Lord, now it's my mission. Um, now it's my passion. Uh, this is Mother Teresa getting the call to Calcutta um, and saying, yeah, I know that this is one of the places of greatest suffering in our world, but Jesus, if it's your mission and your will, then it's my will too, and I want to go there, and I want to make people be able to die with dignity. Uh, it's Lisa Stenholz who runs the Masses Project, the anti-human trafficking ministry we're involved with, who went on a trip to a foreign country doing anti-trafficking work and came back, and instead of saying, the problems of this world are bigger than I can handle, she said, all right, God, if you want me to work on this problem, then it's going to be my mission too. And, and, and I love this idea that these people, instead of just throwing up their hands, they roll up their sleeves, right, and they say, all right, if it's your will, it's mine. I think about Solanto Seal Henderson, who's our missionary in Haiti, who grew up mostly in the United States, um, who saw his home country, and, uh, you know, Haiti is the poorest country in our hemisphere, and he said, uh, I don't know how I can solve that, but Jesus, if that's your will, I'm going to go try. Right? We're going to do it together. It's my mission now. And he didn't throw up his hands. He just rolled up his sleeves. Or um, D. Jenkins taking one family uh, and saying, I'm going to take care of this one family for Christmas. Um, when they need more than I can imagine, and so many families need more than I can imagine, uh, Christ is calling me not to throw up my hands, but to roll up my sleeves. And I wonder um, if this is exactly what Jesus meant when he said our spirit um, has to be stronger than our flesh, right? I think our flesh is that part of us that says, hey, this is hopeless. And our spirit is that part of us that says, let's get to work. I read a statistic this week that said um, 40, only 47% of Americans are church-going. Um, it was the lowest percentage of Americans um, who go to church on a regular basis for at least the last century. And I read that, and i got to be honest, my first response was, Lord, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, it just sounds like, how are we supposed to fix this? Everything's going in the wrong direction. And, and then I thought, I'm not sure that's the right response. Maybe God's calling me to say, hey, Jim, you know what my will is. Go and make disciples. you got more opportunities to go make disciples than anybody else has had in the last century in our country. I don't want to hear you telling me you're overwhelmed. It's your mission too. Let's get on it. Stop throwing up your hands. Start rolling up your sleeves. Uh, I believe if we... Uh, can recognize the incredible privilege of letting God's will be our will, um, we can take some of that external overwhelming stress and make it that internal mission that drives us and fuels us to do extraordinary things for God. Um, one of my favorite prayers is by a guy named Bobby Richardson, who was a former New York Yankee second baseman, uh, and his prayer is short and sweet, dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less nothing else. In the most stressful seasons of our lives, if we want to be awake to the movement of God, I believe it comes down to just these two very simple ideas. I think we have to, to rest in prayer with God. We have to extend that loving union with Him and 
Sometimes that begins by just finding our desert place. And then we have to learn to pray that God's will becomes ours, right? That those things that feel external become internal, and all of a sudden the mission of God is the mission of the church. Uh, And when that happens, I believe the Spirit will be stronger than the flesh. So Jesus says to us, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Thanks be to Him. Amen.